Hi there, and welcome to the third episode of Modern Aikidoist Podcast. I want to thank everybody for the support. Your thumbs up, comments, subscriptions, and letting others know about this podcast really help support this effort. Just a little bit of news before we get started. This podcast is now available on iTunes, which through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and of course, YouTube. This episode is a prelude to The Myths of Aikido Which Need to Die, Part 2, which is the episode that's coming up next. This one will set the groundwork for taking on the myths which are taught in much of the Aikido world. The crisis of faith that I experienced was the initial opening of the door into the depth of examination of my Aikido, and the realities of the knife were powerful and undeniable. As an instructor, I feel a great responsibility to my students to expose them to the truth and not to falsehoods. In the case of knives and deadly weapons, falsehoods can get them killed. I just couldn't imagine what it would be like to find out that a student of mine was hurt or killed and to think for a second that what I taught them may have contributed to their injuries or their death. I think it's important to mention that this examination is not personal. I have the greatest respect for my instructor and my instructors and all of those people who taught me their Aikido. Americans tend to f fixate on finding someone to blame when they are faced with a problem or then when they encounter a problem. It's far more effective, though, to identify the nature of the problem and merely work on the solution for it. It's largely a waste of time merely to try to find somebody to blame for the problem. Even if you do find a responsible party or parties, it doesn't get you any closer to finding a solution to the problem. You've merely wasted your time that you could have spent, been spending being productive and finding your solution. So where did my crisis of faith start? It started when I realized that the attacks in Aikido with the knife were very strictly choreographed and they weren't realistic. I found that it was an unstated rule that attackers who were attacking their nages with the knife were supposed to give up on further attacks or having strong intent uh, or adapting their attacks and would stop after they did a lunge attack, for example, and allow nage to perform a technique. The attacks themselves were not very accurate either. They tended to be either a, a lunge forward as you stepped, kind of like a fencing uh, rapier lunge, or an overhead shomenuchi attack, or a big yokoman attack. All of these were very strongly telegraphed, so you could see them coming from a long way away and involved the, the attacker lunging his whole body in. And these are just not realistic knife attacks at all. It's understandable taking beginning students and going really slow with them and showing them at a pace that is not scary or terrifying what an attack looks like. The problem is, is that real knife attacks look nothing like those three typical attacks. The lunging thrust, the shomenuchi overhead stab, and the big yokoman wide swing. Also note that I'm not saying that these attacks could never happen. In fact, combat is chaos. A real fight is pure chaos and anything can happen. There have even been some videos that have emerged of, of a straight shomenuchi overhead stab that happened in a real life knife fight. That's not saying that that's terribly common. And so we can't fill our training with one small thing that we've seen. In my opinion, training should be closer to the highest probability of the attacks that you would encounter in a real life type situation and that's where more of your training time should be spent. Let's cover some of the problems with the typical approach that is used in Aikido dojos these days. Firstly, when you slow everything way down an attack and the technique, this is fine for beginners to learn but it causes distortions of time 
and it takes away some of the realities. There's a place for teaching techniques very slowly at first. Even though you start training slowly, it needs to escalate in terms of speed and intensity as the student gets more comfortable. And so they understand that as higher speed, higher intensity, and even more adaptability on Uke's part, that is a major factor of dealing with any technique. One consistent training problem is lack of intent. And it's an easy trap. All of us have fallen into it. Whereas you're, as you're being Uke, you tend to get a little lazy. You tend to think, well, I'm not training Aikido because I don't get to be Nage and I don't get to do the throws. So I'm going to sort of give half-hearted attacks. And with the knife, the, it winds up being the exact same way. But this introduces a major problem for Nage in that he gets used to dealing with low-intensity, low-level, half-hearted attacks. And if he's ever faced with a real attack that has real intent behind it, he's not prepared to deal with that level of intensity. Now, when it comes to training, I want to point out, you don't have to do it fast to have full intent. In fact, a really good uke can help their training partner by having the full level of intent, even working at a slower speed, half speed, quarter speed, three-quarter speed, and be able to help their nage by providing the level of speed and intensity that they are ready to, to handle and then go just a little bit beyond it because that's the way that Nage can incrementally improve their skills without either feeling bored because they're dealing with an attack that really isn't, they don't have to take seriously, or two, dealing with an attack that is too intense, too fast, and they get confused and they get lost. If that happens, usually panic overwhelms them, and their training time is wasted because we don't learn anything when we are in a panic state. I'm a big believer in tactile learning, and that is where you can feel the lesson that's being taught, not just have it explained to you. So if you are ready to, to wake up and try a tactile example, try the marker drill. Some of you have probably heard about this, but I'll describe it for people who have not. The first step with the marker drill is you get a white t-shirt, and if you can, white pants that you don't mind having marked up. Take a dry erase marker and give it to your uke. Then tell your uke that he can attack you any way he wants, as quick as he wants, but he needs to keep attacking you. He needs to put as many marks on your, your body or your shirt or your pants as he can. That marker represents essentially a very, very short-bladed knife. You can imagine almost like an X-Acto knife. If you want to get a little fancier, you could take a, a Tonto. I've seen people wrap it in cloth, like a cloth tape, and then they can put um, some sort of marking agent on it so that it will mark the white shirt and it will leave marks on it. I've heard you can go to the dollar store and buy lipstick, for example, and spread it on the blade. But you want something that's going to leave marks. And then tell your uke, no telegraphing. Don't, don't choreograph your attacks. If I go to grab your hand, pull it away as quickly as you can. Try to slash and cut hands, forearms, uh, legs, knees, anywhere. Try to avoid the eyes and the face. But if you can wrap around the body and drag the knife across somebody uh, Nage's back, you can do that. Uh, just get very creative. And uh, if you really want a good example of this, find a 10-year-old and tell him you'll get a give him a bowl of ice cream for every mark he puts on you. And then tell him anything goes and see what happens. Then you can try your typical disarming techniques. How do you protect yourself against somebody who's unskilled but is just got that blade flying all over the place. 
it's very, very difficult to deal with, but it's a great, great exercise. I've seen people that have been in martial arts that involve knives for years, if not decades, the first time they try this, it's one of the greatest experiences they ever have. And a number of them have taken that t-shirt home and hung it up on the wall as a reminder of what the potential of dealing with a real knife might be like. And I very much encourage you, don't just listen to this description or try to imagine it. Really try to do it. It only costs you a couple of bucks, and it's probably going to provide you so much more insight than you could ever have by, by just trying to picture how it would go in your own mind. Now, if you do that, also keep in mind that with a dry erase marker, that the blade is only about as long as your thumbnail. Now imagine what it would be with a six-inch blade. Now take that one step farther and imagine that with a katana or a sharpened sword. A sword is a whole new level of deadly danger, and anybody empty-handed dealing with a swordsman is, I think, just going to get cut to ribbons. There's almost no way to get close to somebody who's armed with a sword. Empty-handed, just with your bare hands, trying to disarm or somehow capture that knife wielder without getting a serious cut. Swords are amazing at causing incredible injury and damage. They are designed to kill people, and they do it very, very well. So if you step into range with somebody wielding a sword, it's probably one of the worst mistakes that you'd ever make, and you would be lucky to live through it or not experience a very severe injury. That said, I will say that I do enjoy training sword disarms every once in a while, and I do share them with my students. But every time I do, I make sure I'm crystal clear that if you are faced with a person with a real bladed weapon that's intending to do harm to you, get away from them as quickly as possible. It could very well be the last mistake you would ever make to think that you can, by your bare hands, disarm somebody with a knife or a sword. So what fundamental approaches did I change with my own training and my own views of of weaponry with this new knowledge of how dangerous bladed weapons were. Basically, I came out with a, I guess you'd call it a rules of engagement for what to, how to handle these things if you were to ever be exposed to them. The very first one, and probably top of the list, is avoid real life violence at, if you can at all, because anything can happen. Obviously, we're peaceful people. We choose not to not to indulge in violence, uh, nor choose it as a as an option for resolving our disputes. But make sure you understand just how dangerous real life violence can be, and it's unpredictable as well. People who do start fights generally only do so when they have a high confidence that they're going to win. That means that they probably have at least one ace in the hole, maybe two. That might be friends nearby. That might be that they feel that they've got a high level of skill, but it can also be that they're carrying a weapon. And oftentimes they may start a fight not with the weapon in their hand, but they may bring it out once they realize that they're not winning or that the fight's not going as well as they had planned. So just because a fight may start without a weapon being involved, beware that it could one could come out at any time. If you do find yourself dealing with a violent conflict, Get distance away from an attacker as quickly as possible and find a bigger weapon. Find something that you can pick up to put in between you and them. My favorite is a chair, but you can also use things like waste baskets or anything big because if they pull out a knife, you definitely want to have something between you and that knife. It was a couple of years after I went through this process that I came across a fantastic article 
by Josh Gold over at the Aikido Journal. It's called Knife Defenses, Death by Disarm. And he wrote that up in September of 2016, and it's on the Aikido Journal website. And I encourage you to Google it. I will put a link in the description of this podcast so that you can go right to it. But he describes a very similar process and that crisis of faith that he found the same way that I did with how Aikido trains with the knife and the defenses it uses for disarms and and such. And he includes some videos uh, of some of the things that he worked on with Jeff Imada, and it's fantastic resource. I highly suggest you go have a look. The second resource I want to point you to is an article by a woman named Patrice Bonifo, and I hope I pronounce her name correctly. The name is Self-Defense Against Knife Attacks, an Evidence-Based Approach. It's on a website called urbanfitandfearless.com, and it's written in originally in 2016, and I believe there's a recent update to that article. The article includes a wealth of data and breakdowns of many knife attacks, how they happen, how long they take, all kinds of fascinating information. Definitely go check it out. Just like with that article, I will post a link to it in the description selection below. So go check both of those out and stand by for the next episode. Aikido, Myths Which Need to Die, Part 2. Thanks for listening, and you can support the show by subscribing, liking and sharing this with others, or commenting in the comments section. Thank you very much, and we'll see you in the next episode.